You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Friends, welcome back for what is week three of our brand new sermon series, you can see by way of the screens behind me, called Ordo. Ordo. If it's been a minute uh, since your last Latin class, fear not, you've come to the right place. Ordo in English means order, order. And uh, the whole uh, sort of uh, desire for this sermon series, the driving force behind the sermon series, was the realization that if you actually go back and you read, You read and you study scripture and you go back and you actually read uh, throughout church history. Theologians like John Wesley, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Augustine. All of these folks suggest that there is quite literally a linear progression, some linear stages and levels to the Christian life. We may not walk them linearly. Uh, John Wesley used to say there's such thing as an ordo salutis, an order of salvation. Ideally, we move right through all these nine stages in this way, but we all live life and it looks more like this. We just go three steps forward, two steps back, and then we're all over the place until we eventually uh, pass from this life to the next and we stand before Jesus and said, "Uh, we did our best. And so um, we said, you know, what would what would it look like for us to actually walk through these stages together as a church, to walk them and actually, for some of us, teach people for the very first time that there are progressions, there's evolutionary steps and levels to this Christian journey. And furthermore, to come alongside and give tools, to give resources so that you can figure out, okay, well, if I'm here, then it seems like in order to get there, I need to start doing more of this. I need to incorporate more of this sort of stuff in my spiritual diet. And so if you haven't done so already, we've been talking about this for the last couple weeks, Uh, please, uh, at During worship or after worship, go to this website, ordofaith.com. We created this here at the Peak. Uh, A small team here at the Peak created this, which is a a wealth of resources. It gives you an overview of, like, what each of those stages are, one through nine. Gives you practical sort of exercises that you can do daily, weekly. And then, most importantly, if you go to this website, you'll find an assessment. An assessment that's roughly 70 questions. It'll take you, like, 10 to 15 minutes. We've timed it. Uh, and it'll sign you. It'll say, based off what you shared with us, it seems like you're in this, roughly this stage or level of faith. And you go back to the website and you learn more about what that means and what you should be doing to sort of tend to your heart and soul in a faithful way so that you see the results you want to see. We talked about this last week, that the quickest way to bail on a diet routine or an exercise regimen is when you don't see results. And oftentimes, as a pastor, I believe this is true of faith, that sometimes we are going through the motions, we don't necessarily see, or we're not able to track or measure our progress and how far we've come from when we first started. And so, as a result of that, sometimes we question if any of this is worth it at all. And so the tool here is meant to help you in that, to help you sort of track your progress and see what God is doing in you if you tend to the things that Jesus calls us to. And so, if you're first, if you're joining us for the very first time, uh, and this sounds super interesting to you, we've had over 100 folks take this already, I want to encourage you to do the same. Take it sometime this week, um, because we've already been having a conversation, we're already a couple levels in. So, each week of this sermon series, we're going to sort of unpack 
each of the nine levels. And so where we are now uh, is we've actually covered the first three. We've covered the first three. Uh, the first place we start uh, is actually with the realization, the reminder that uh, you and I actually are not responsible for initiating faith, initiating our relationship with God. It was actually God's action first. It was God's initiation uh, first that made our relationship with him possible. And then after that, we become aware of it at some point or another. Maybe for you, this is when you were in middle school or high school or college, or maybe this has been a recent endeavor for you. You've become, you've become more aware of sort of your spiritual health and your, this desire for a deeper sense of spirituality, which leads ultimately to some step of conversion. Ideally, this is confirmation. This is baptism. This is a moment where you say, I want to commit to this. I want my life to be about what Jesus is about. But after that, you're not an expert, right? You just started. And so what you need to go through next, which is the phase we're going to unpack today, you, do, you and I have to go through a phase of orientation, orientation, a new orientation uh, to, you know, this way that Jesus calls us to. And I want to say this as we're starting out, that I'm actually uh, really, really, really excited for this, the conversation about these next couple of phases. Reason being, if I had to bet, I believe that most Christians, particularly in the West, I believe most Christians fall somewhere in phases four, five, or six, four, five, or six. And the reason for which is because in those stages, four, five, and six, I believe are the biggest and the deepest traps that we fall into. I made this on uh, Microsoft Paint uh, earlier this week, as you can tell by the beauty of this uh, artistic depiction. And so I'm going to stick to my day job. But you see what I'm trying to get at, that the trap we're going to talk about today, a little bit later in the sermon, and the trap we're going to talk about next week, in my experience as a pastor, this is where I find Christians stuck all the time. And so Kyle, like, okay, well, like, what are those? You have the hook. Great. What are those? How do we avoid that? We'll come to that in a moment. Before we do so, let's dig into our scripture passage for today. So if you have your Bibles or if you're, watching, if you're here in person or if you're watching this online, feel free to return back to Acts chapter 8. That's the passage that uh, we're going to dig into today that Liz just read a couple moments ago. If you are new to church or new to studying scripture and you're still trying to figure out your way around the Bible, uh, Acts, the book of Acts, uh, to give you just a brief synopsis, it is the sort of chapter uh, in the story of right after Jesus rises from the dead and then ascends into heaven, okay? So right after that happens, what happens? The Holy Spirit shows up, and then when the Holy Spirit shows up, the church is born, and when the church is born, we receive from Jesus our very first ever mission statement. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says this. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to all Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so this is where we are in the story. Jesus has already risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit's with us now, and the Holy Spirit has taken the church all over the region to spread the news of who this Jesus person was. Okay? And I want you in particular to remember the ends of the earth, because we're going to come right back to that in just a moment. And so this is where we are in the story. And there's this early church leader, uh, amongst all the, you know, regular suspects you remember, Peter and Paul and those folks, there was another church leader named Philip. And one day, Philip feels led. He feels a nudge to go south, that that's his next sort of mission field. So he goes south, and he finds himself in this, de this like, desert run-down town between, there's this town, uh, this road that runs between Jerusalem and Gaza. There's no one on it. There's nothing to see, no, no communities, no towns, no cities. So he's out there, and he's like, okay, the Holy Spirit, I'm here. And 
uh, there doesn't seem like a lot of witnessing uh, to be done out here. And so, uh, no, not so long, like a second later, uh, someone comes charging down the road, and it's an Ethiopian eunuch. So this person uh, doesn't look like them, uh, is uh, probably dressed very differently than they are, and he notices, Philip notices from a distance, he notices that this Ethiopian eunuch is reading scripture, reading a passage from Isaiah. And so time out, time out. This immediately should raise a ton of questions, a ton of questions. First of which, how in the world did someone from Ethiopia already hear about the news of Jesus? That Israel and Ethiopia are not close geographically. Ready? Here's what it looks like. They're 2,400 miles away, okay? 2,400 miles away. No airplane, no car. It's you and a camel, baby. That's how you get to places back then. And so... That same distance, 2,400 miles, just for reference, just for reference, that is the same, roughly the same width from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. And it took Lewis and Clark, many years after this, it took Lewis and Clark a year and a half to go from one ocean to the other. And so when you see this, and this, the church has been doing this mission for weeks maybe, maybe a couple of months, how in the world did someone from that far away already hear and learn about Jesus? And this goes back to this whole conversation we're having with Ordo, friends. The, again, if you don't know this to be true in your own life, I can speak on it on behalf of mine that, again, over and over and over again, when I look back on my spiritual journey, it was God who was doing the initiating. It was God who was always doing the first pursuit of me long before I ever had any interest in God myself. And so it's obvious that some way, somehow, before the church could reach the ends of the earth, God was bringing the ends of the earth to them. And we don't know how. We don't know how, right? How exactly this Ethiopian per, uh, guy heard uh, the news of Jesus. Did he get, uh, was he, did the angel come or did the Holy Spirit show up? There's this really, really interesting passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, that talks about what Jesus' like, activities during his, right after his resurrection, so he rises from the dead. But then there's like a bunch of time, there's several weeks in between, between that and when he ascends into heaven. So like, what was he doing? Like, what was he up to? And Paul says this, he says that Jesus appeared to Peter, then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at once. And that's all we get. That's all we get. What were they doing? Where were they? What were they doing? Like, we don't have no idea. So maybe the Ethiopian eunuch was there when that happened. Or maybe God was working in some other way to bring this child of his that was geographically, most likely spiritually, a long ways off, closer to him. And so I want you to see that when you get the gravity of what's about to transpire. So when he's reading scripture, it's not just sort of like, well, you know, he's just curious. Because when we read in Acts chapter 8, it says this. He says that he was there on purpose. The man replied, or here we go. Meanwhile, an Ethiopian man was on his way home from Jerusalem where he had come to worship. So he wasn't there on a business trip. He wasn't there just sightseeing. He was there on purpose. He was actively aware and seeking more of who this Jesus was and this life that Jesus came to bring. And I love this interaction between him and Philip because Philip walks up and says, do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand what that story is all about? 
because I do. And uh, he says, uh, no, how am I supposed to unless someone teaches me, unless someone shows me, unless someone reveals it to me. And a couple of verses later, they come, up, come upon some water. He gets baptized. And he becomes the very first missionary to Africa in the name of Jesus. And so here in this story, we're seeing someone who is going through new believer orientation. Stage four on this Ordo journey. And maybe that's, again, where you find yourself today. Maybe you've taken the assessment already, or maybe as you're sort of like looking them through before you take the assessment, you're like, yeah, that's, that's where I am. Either because uh, faith is a new thing for you, faith has never been a part of your thing, you've never been interested in religion, you've never been interested in church, and recently it has been, and you've now uh, sort of made the decision, I really want to give this thing a go, but I don't know anything about church and faith and Bible and stuff, and so you're here, and you're in that sort of phase, and we're really glad you're here. Or maybe for you, uh, you're at stage four, and it's because you've had an on and off again sort of relationship with faith. So sometimes you're really into it, you're on fire for Jesus and God and all those wonderful things, and then there's deep, deep lulls, and then you come back, and so because of that sort of ebb and flow, you sort of find yourself stagnant and stuck in this phase. Wherever you are, I want to encourage you, again, to plug that website one more time. Go and read the resources on your own. Because again, we try to give a lot of insight into what does it look like to be in this stage and what are some recommendations for you when you're in this stage. And so here at the start, I want to say one quick thing. I want to say one quick thing and then we're going to dig into a couple of different areas. One of the things that's really, really important to note is that if you find yourself right now or you, know, you have in the past found yourself in this sort of orientation stage, it's really important to point out that this is not like any type of orientation you've gone through before. Okay? Maybe some of you have gone through like a new job orientation or a new school orientation. Like this is not where you learn like where Jesus keeps the good wine in heaven. So you can just sort of like mark that on the map and be like, okay, great. great. Uh, it's not like that. It's not like that. Think of this more along the lines of uh, this is you being given an orientation into an entirely new humanity, an entirely new existence. It got me thinking about, um, so uh, Avatar 2 is coming out soon. Avatar 2, anybody interested, uh, excited about Avatar 2? Anybody? Me and about seven people? Sweet. Um, I love this. I love the first one. Loved the first one. Saw it a bunch of times. Uh, gave a bunch of my money to them. I was part of the problem that was just giving them millions and billions of dollars um, when it came out. And I watched it recently because I was like, I don't really remember. I, I forgot the, the plot of it. And so for those of you who've seen it, you know the plot. For those of you who haven't seen it, the plot of this movie, the story of this movie is it's about these, about humans who go to uh, this planet called Pandora. And while they're there, they learn how to incarnate themselves into these aliens. The guy on the right, Jake Sully, that's actually was a human, is a human. Well, you'll see in a minute. And so he's living in this sort of hybrid existence. He's living part-time as an alien, and then he sort of comes out of the sort of, uh, you know, surrogacy sort of subject technology thing that they put him in, and then he's back to his human existence. And what's fascinating is that the movie goes on. The more he lives as one of these folks, he begins to learn that... These folks are more kind, uh, they're more gracious, they're a lot more caretaking to the earth, and that, well, not earth, Pandora, their creation that they're living on. And he begins to find a crisis brewing within himself, this tension within himself. It says this, it says later on, he says, now 
everything is backwards. Everything is backwards. It feels like now, when I'm living as an alien out there, it feels like that's the true world. That's the real world. And it feels like this, this human existence. We're bickering with each other. We're vengeful. We're greedy. We're selfish. It feels like this is the bad dream. And friends, Scripture talks very similarly. Scripture talks very similarly about the new orientation you and I are supposed to go through, right? Jesus says this. He says, they, talking about his disciples, any of his disciples, they don't belong to this world just as I don't belong to this world. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, the more you become a Christian, the more you are following Jesus, the more of your life you give over to Jesus, the more you begin to realize that, holy cow, the more I participate in this new kingdom that's going to come to earth in the next life, the more I participate in it now, the more I feel like I belong to that world and I feel more and more strange. I feel more and more alien to this world and this way of doing things. Friends, the orientation that you're going through, again, it's not just learning quick little tidbits and facts and figures about the Bible or about theology or about Jesus. It's about completely reorienting your entire being in alignment with this kingdom of God that Jesus talks so much about. Now, to be fair, this reorientation takes an entire lifetime, okay? It takes an entire lifetime. It takes a long time to sort of allow my entire system to be recalibrated to this world that God is preparing for us. But friends, where it starts, where it starts is by making sure that you tend to the things that, again, Scripture prescribes and the church historically has always prescribed for folks who find themselves in this stage of faith. So if you're in stage four, you're in this orientation phase, and you come to me, you come to Pastor Amanda, typically what we do is we recommend some diet of this, some diet of this, mentorship, study, and application. Mentorship, study, and application. Let's break them down. Okay, first, mentorship. One of the very first recommendations I ever make to someone who's a brand new disciple who's trying to learn about Jesus' ways, one of the very first things I recommend for them is finding someone who will lead them. If you're going through, oh, I don't know, new existence orientation, you probably shouldn't do that by yourself, right? It probably would behoove you to Walk alongside somebody who's been doing this for a little bit longer than you. They're, they're up ahead. They've gone through a couple of turns, and they can coach you on what to expect and what it's like and where you ought to be spending your time, what temptations you can avoid. This is an ethic that is deeply, deeply embedded in the early church. Paul would have lost no sleep over saying something like this. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He's not saying, I'm perfect, do everything like me, I got it all figured out, but he's saying, this is the way discipleship works. When you sign up to be a follower of Jesus, you are signing up to follow him. And oftentimes, you need in the caravan someone else uh, in the point of view who's a little bit closer to you than they are to Jesus so that you can sort of stay on the path, right? And so for him... This is just sort of part and parcel to the way in which they did life. In fact, in first century Judaism, uh, parents used to say this. Whenever they would send their students off to go and learn from rabbis, they would say this. They would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It's a weird thing to say, uh, especially here in 2022. We have no context for that. Like, are they having, like, little, like, dust uh, fights? Like, what's happening? I don't understand. 
And that's because in the first century, there, the ethic was, you and I, at this particular stage, we need spiritual authority. We need people in our lives to model our lives after. And you should stick so close to this mentor that a little bit of them starts rubbing off on you. Now, I can see your faces. You can't see your faces, but I can see your faces. And as I was writing this sermon earlier this week, I was like, yo, people ain't going to be down for this. Um, Because this ethic runs so counter to the way in which we live our lives, especially here in America, especially here in the West in 2022. Check it out. A few research found this. They found that uh, when polled, uh, Americans would much rather trust themselves than go to someone else for advice or direction when they're facing a big life decision. Three quarters of folks. And that's because that same study found that six in 10 Americans say that other people, no more specificity was given. It was just like, can other people be trusted? Like, nope. Six in 10 said other people cannot be trusted, right? And so we live our lives completely reliant upon ourselves most of the time, failing to understand that there is another way to live. It's the same problem, just another manifestation. I feel like as a pastor, I look out in the world today, it's like it's the same problem taking on another manifestation. The very thing we need is the very thing we don't trust. The very thing we need is the very thing we cannot and will not trust. This is me at department stores, uh, by the way. Anybody else uh, like me in this regard? You walk into a department store, and there's always a really friendly person who's super extroverted who walks up and goes, hello, can I help you today? Every time, I say, absolutely not. Uh, we, um, I'm just parousing. I'm just here. I'm, I, I could be there on a mission to buy something, but I will kind of fib and say, nope, I'm just looking. I'm just looking, and I will go look for it myself. And when I can't find it, can you guess what I do? Do I go and look for help? Absolutely not. I will spend the next 30 to 45 minutes looking by myself until I locate said item. Okay, I have dignity. I have respect. This is the way we do things here in America. We do it ourselves. Even if it takes way longer, even if I never find what it is I'm looking for. And so we laugh, but this is the way we do so much of our lives. And it's definitely the way we do faith in the contemporary American church. And so to be clear about something... I'm not saying, especially some of you are listening to this, and you're like, yo, like, but you're failing to mention that some of us, the reason why we don't trust or we don't look for spiritual authority or spiritual mentorship, the reason why we don't trust anyone else to lead us is because the last time we did that, we got burned. Last time I got hurt. Last time I got led astray. So pardon me if I'm not fast to sort of show up in church and say, yeah, I trust pastors and all the Christians, and I'm just so glad to be here. Like, pardon me if it takes me a minute, Right? And so just be super clear about something. I'm not saying, for those of you who are in this stage of your faith, that you have to overnight start full, putting full trust in every single believer out there. But I am saying, dadgummit, you got to find at least one. you got to find somebody who's leading you. For me, just a full disclosure, so I've got three. There's three people in my life. So I don't, do I have a million? No. Do I have 50? No, I have three. There's three people in my life who have spiritual leadership, spiritual authority over my life, meaning if ever I'm about to make a decision, they get to have a say. And it's because I trust them. I know their heart. 
and I know that they want what God wants for me. And if you ain't convinced yet, then I'll just leave you with this, with that piece. Friends, you can try to do faith and do life all on your own, but I'm telling you, please hear this, please hear this. Too much individualism is actually a form of bondage. I'm going to say that again for the people in the back. Too much individualism. Too much, I'm going to do this by myself. I don't need nobody's help. I'll figure this thing out. I don't care if i got to do 17 laps around this department store. I'm going to figure it out, it. It's actually a form of bondage. The times when I've been most stuck in life, just going around in circles, are the times when I was facing a problem and I never had an ounce of humility to ask somebody a little bit wiser than me what they would do or say. And friends, this is something we as American Christians have to learn, okay? We've got this twisted, warped understanding of freedom, right? Because America is the land of the? Mm-hmm. But guess what? Scripture don't talk about freedom that way. If you actually read scripture and you actually watch the model of Jesus, what you'll find is that true freedom is not doing whatever it is you want to do whenever you feel like it. That's not freedom. This is my sort of working definition. I'm still working on it. True freedom, what I found when I look at Jesus and when I watch how he coaches and walks alongside the disciples, true freedom is knowing what's best for you and then having the discipline and the accountability to follow through. That's freedom. Those are the only people I know who are truly, actually free. So Kyle, I mean like, so, okay, great, I hear you. Uh, so knowing what's best, like how do I figure out what's best? Well, you start implementing a dietary suggestion, number two. So again, go back to this whole list that we're talking through. Whenever I find folks who are in this, and I'm walking alongside folks who are in this stage of faith, not only uh, would I strongly recommend mentorship, following somebody who's been doing this a little bit longer than you. But number two is study. Study. Study your butt off. Take every class you can. Uh, read every book you can. If you don't know what books to find, ask your pastors. Ask trusted spiritual leaders in your life, people who've been, again, doing this longer than you. What would you read if you were trying to learn more about forgiveness or loving your enemies or the Holy Spirit? Like, if I'm trying to get more information on these, where do I go? Friends, in this, sta in this stage, this level, you ought to be eating up as much as you can to be reoriented into the person God's called you to be. Now, as you do so, I'm going to give you a word of warning, okay? I'm going to give you a word of warning. As you engage in the study of your faith, please, for the love of God, be sure that you study not only with the goal of information, but transformation. Be sure whenever you engage and you set out, say, I want to learn more about my faith. I want to learn more about Christianity. I want to learn more about Jesus. Be sure you're seeking not just information, but transformation. There's a scripture passage in the New Testament that as a pastor, as a religious leader, has always haunted me. It says this. Uh, Paul says this. He says, they, and when he says they, he's talking about folks like me. Uh, he's talking about religious leaders. He's talking about priests. He's talking about the folks that uh, were responsible for getting Jesus executed. He says, these types of folks will act religious but they'll reject the power that could actually make them godly. In other words, there's a temptation 
to only to use uh, newfound understanding and spiritual knowledge to sort of clothe yourself. Well, I got all the right answers. I know all the right things to do. But you never, ever let it permeate your heart. It never actually seeps in. I'm telling you, in the church, I've watched this in too many churches and too many Christians. I watch people all the time. What they do, their, their, their reason for study, the reason why they sign up for every single Bible study under the sun is because what they want to do is they want to use that information in one of two ways. One of two ways. Number one, they want to use it to prop themselves up. I was just reading the other day, and um, C.S. Lewis says, <laughs> I want to give the appearance that I'm farther along than you think I am. I want, to, I want to create the impression that I am exactly the type of person I'm aiming to be, and I'm that person already right now. I watch people all the time either use knowledge about God to prop themselves up, or I watch them use it to bring other people down. I watch Christians use that newfound information and knowledge all the time to beat up on non-believers, uh, to beat up on people of other religions, to beat up on people who aren't as far along as they are. I will never forget this. For the, for the rest of my life, I'll never forget this. When I was in college, I took a class, and we were studying uh, different passages of the Old Testament. And this particular session, uh, we were studying the passage of the seven deadly sins. Seven deadly sins? So... Uh, gluttony and sloth and vanity, like all these. And I'll never forget, um, the, the lecturer is talking about these, and he's saying, you know, these are the things that we got to avoid. We can't be known for these types of things, and we don't do these things. So quickly, quickly, really quick, quick, quick. So he opens up the class. He says, can you think of examples where you've seen this? And the class is so fast to point out where they've seen it in other people. For like the next 30 minutes, everybody's like, yeah, I'm my boss. He's so prideful. Ugh. And then this person's like, yeah, I got this family member who like never comes to church with me every time I invite them because they're such a sloth. Like over and over and over again. And I'm sitting there listening to this. I'm sitting in the middle of the class. And eventually I worked up the courage and I raised my hand. He goes, Kyle, where have you seen it? I was like, um, I did all of these last week. <laughs> You could have heard a pin drop. But friends, it's, it's, it's using this newfound information and knowledge about God in that way. Um, I'll be honest, and I'm going to say something that actually might startle you a bit, but it needs to be said. Um, it's people who use newfound knowledge and understanding of God in this way as a prop or as a weapon it's actually these people I worry about the most. These are the people that concern me the most. I worry about them more than people who have never heard the name of Jesus before. I worry about their fate way more than people who have had no experience or interaction or encounter with Jesus yet. Why? Why? Because they know better. And it's obvious that when you use Christian understanding and knowledge in that way, it's obvious. You're a lot more interested in using God than knowing him. 
you're a lot more interested in leveraging God than allowing that stuff to actually save you. And friends, that leads to my third and final dietary recommendation for uh, those, I feel like a a doctor, uh, those patients who come, but it's like, this is the third thing I always recommend to folks who find themselves in that stage. The way in which you avoid that is thirdly and finally, in this stage, it is vital, it is so important that you not only incorporate mentorship and study into your life, but you actually also include the third one, which is application. You apply this daggum stuff to other people. No, to you. (laughs) Stop thinking about everybody else. I know, but my Uncle Larry, no, you, you. Instead of seeing all this newfound information and understanding you're receiving about the Bible, about Jesus, and about the abundant life that Jesus came to bring, instead of seeing these things as a prop or as a weapon, start seeing it as an antidote meant to be injected into your own heart so that it can finally start counteracting all of the selfishness and the jealousy and the greed that has been coursing through your veins and that runs the immense risk of ruining your life. Friends, this is why Peter said what he said in 2 Peter chapter 3. I love this verse. He says this. He says, when you grow, when you try to grow in faith, please make sure you're growing in knowledge and grace. Make sure you're growing in knowledge and grace. Make sure this stuff that you're studying and learning about in church, in Bible study, in small group, make sure the devotionals and the books you're reading, make sure it's permeating not just your head, but it is permeating your heart your very life. Because if you don't, if you don't, you will find yourself stuck in one of those aforementioned traps I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon today. You'll wake up one day, maybe you'll discover it while you're at church. And you will encounter the haunting realization that you've spent your entire life learning about God without ever actually getting to know God. Hear the difference? You'll realize that you've spent years trying to acquire as many facts as you can about God. And never actually putting yourself out there to learn how to follow him. And friends, I'll close with this. this I'll finally give you what this trap is, what, it's, what, what I call it, what we call it. So the trap here in phase four, stage four, this orientation phase, the trap waiting for so many of us is something we might call uh, cerebral Christianity. Cerebral Christianity. It's a type of Christian faith that uh, only exists up here. It's an intellectual exercise. It's a cognitive thing. Beyond that, something you think about and talk about with your friends every once in a while or on Sundays. Beyond that, it doesn't go anywhere. It's the reminder that, it's, friends, it's not only possible, but it's incredibly tempting to become a Christian that is theologically rich 
but spiritually very, very poor. It's possible to be incredibly theologically jacked, for those of you who like to work out on a regular basis, to be theologically buff, and you can be at the exact same time spiritually incredibly malnourished. And if you're looking to scripture, look no further than the story of the rich young ruler. Some of you know the story. You know the story of the rich young ruler. If you don't know the story, there's this rich young guy who's super educated. He's been steeped in the faith. He shows up to Jesus. He says, yo, I want to follow you, man. Like, I want to be one of your disciples. And so, like, uh, what do I got to do to, like, experience this life? Like, what do I got to do to get, like, your stuff? And he says, uh, Jesus, uh, he baits him. He baits him. He says, well, you know, do you know the commandments? Do you know uh, the sort of core tenets of the faith? He's like, yep. Boom, 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 boom. Just, like, cites him off, spouts him from memory. He's like, great. So, like, is there a card or a certificate? Or, like, where do you keep those? Or, like, how do I, um, is there, like, a, where, who do we get to sort of uh, make room for me as I walk in? Um, and Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, okay, great, great, great. So you know all that, awesome. He says, now, now, uh, I want you to uh, sell off your possessions, give them to the poor, and I want you to follow me. And those of you who know the story, what happens? He throws all of his stuff, and he skips along and holds hands with Jesus. No, what does he do? He walks away. He walks away because in that moment he realized that all of the newfound knowledge and information that he had been acquiring his whole life about God was useless when he tried to manipulate Jesus for his stuff. And so friends, so should I be going to Bible studies and classes and reading books? Absolutely. Absolutely you should. Should I be showing up to this church next Sunday? Yes, absolutely. Uh, please, we'd love to see you. 9-11. But friends, as you are hungry and thirsty and running after more knowledge about God, and you're reorienting your life around this way, the way Scripture talks about, the way Jesus calls us to, just be sure you do so and remember that at the end of the age, just remember, the words we're not trying to hear, the words we're not trying to hear are, well done, my good and faithful student. What are they? Well done, my good and faithful servant. When you and I pass from this life to the next, Jesus isn't going to pull you aside and go, tell me all the wonderful things you learned, and uh, let's have a quiz about it. He's going to ask, what'd you do with it? Did you do anything with it? Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.